भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येक्षिंगुवागुस्तनु व्यशेम देवहित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति न पूषा विश्व स्वस्ति नस्ताक्ष्यो अरिष्टने स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओं शाति 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 ओम ओ वेदिक गॉड्स मे वी हियर ऑस्पिशियस वर्ड्स विथ आवर इयर्स वेल एंगेज इन सैक्रिफाइसिस मे वी सी ऑस्पिशियस थिंग्स विथ आवर आईज वेल प्रेजिंग द गॉड्स विथ स्टडी लिम्स मे वी एंजॉय अ लाइफ दैट इज बेनिफिशियल टू द गॉड्स मे इंद्र ऑफ एंशियन फेम बी ऑस्पिशियस टू अस May the all-knowing Pusha, God of the earth, be propitious to us. May Garuda, the destroyer of evil, be well disposed towards us. May Brihaspati ensure our welfare. Om, peace, peace, peace. <clears throat> so we have, while studying the Mundaka Upanishad, completed the first section, or first of six sections. actually the upanishad is traditionally divided into uh, three chapters each with two sections the sections are called mundakas also so we have completed the first section of the first chapter and now the first mundaka what did we see there um all right before i summarize it's a good time to take stock before we go ahead let me chant it not that we have to chant it but i like doing it so i'll do it ब्रह्मादेवाथम संबूव विश्व कर्ता भुवन से गोप्ता स ब्रह्म विद्यादयाष्ठा अथर्वाय ज्येष्ठपुत्रा प्राह अथर्वणेया प्रवदेत ब्रह्म अथर्वाताचांगिरे ब्रह्म विद्या स भारद्वाजाय सत्यवहाय प्राह भारद्वाजो अंगिरसे परावराम शौनको हई महाशालो अंगिसम विधिवदुपसन्न पप्रच्छ कस्मु भगवो विज्ञाते सर्वदम विज्ञाती तस्म सहोवाच वदी पराच तत्रिग्वेद यजुर्वेद सामवेदो अथर्वेद शिक्षा कल्पो व्याकरण निरुक्तम छंदो ज्योतिषमी अथ परायया तदक्षरमगम्यतेदृश्यमग्राह्यमगोत्रम अचक्षुश्रोत्र तदपाणीपाद नित्यं विभुम सर्वगतम सुसूक्ष्म तदव्यय यदूतनी पिपश्यीरा यथोर्णनाजते गृहते चृथिव्यामोषधय संभवती यहाशलोमी तथाक्षरा संभवती हिश्व तपसाचीयते ब्रह्म तथोन्नमिजाते कन्ना प्राणो मन सत्यम लोकाकर्मसुचात यो विद ज्ञानमय तप 
तस्मादेतब्रह्मनामूपमनम चयते so nine mantras and what did we see in that um this is the knowledge of brahman most ancient handed down from ancient times from guru to disciple now the disciple comes shonaka and asks the question to the guru um, angiras and the question is sir what is that by knowing which everything is known so behind this question is a particular understanding of causality that uh, a cause becomes the effects so from one lump of clay you can have a variety of pots from one uh, you know from the same gold you can make a variety of ornaments and so on now if you know the cause cause means the material cause the material out of which effects are produced then you know know the effect also if you know the clay then you know all the pots if you know the gold you know all the ornaments in what sense we know what they truly are if we know that the pots are all made of clay then we know if we know clay we understand what the pots all truly are as i mentioned earlier uh, of course we wouldn't know the the you know the differences in names and forms and activities that comes later but the fundamental reality of everything is known if we know the cause so that's what he's asking just as we know if the cause we know all the effects you know from the same cause a variety of effects may be produced the effects come and go the effects are names and forms and functions but the one cause underneath it is is constant and that's the reality all the time um now is there something for the whole universe I and mean, we can talk about pots and clay and gold and ornaments but for the whole universe for everything in the universe is there like that one cause of everything and what is that and how how can we know that so that's the question um the teacher tells him knowledge is of two kinds knowledge of the cause and knowledge of the effects so knowledge of the ultimate cause that there is an ultimate cause which is is going to reveal as akshara the imper- imperishable brahman and so on that ultimate cause there is a knowledge which reveals that and there is a knowledge about the effects what are the effects the entire universe there is knowledge uh, regarding the entire universe scientific knowledge humanities and religion and all of that all of that is the lower knowledge and the knowledge which reveals which shows you gives you the answer to your question what is that by knowing which everything is known that is the higher knowledge so knowledge is of two kinds higher knowledge and the lower knowledge the knowledge of what you have asked for the cause of the entire universe and the knowledge of the effects the varieties in this universe and then he gives a list of what is lower knowledge aparavidya and then indicates what is higher knowledge the lower knowledge is everything that one can know and here it is indicated because of the vedic context so in the vedic context all that was you know all the vedic corpus the four vedas and associated disciplines like uh, grammar and uh, you know um, the prosody and uh, this the science of how to use these uh, vedic mantras in rituals um uh, ast- uh, astrology and so on all of these are associated disciplines science of pronunciation all of these are associated disciplines the six associated disciplines and the four vedas all of them are lower knowledge they're all lower knowledge then what is higher knowledge the knowledge that reveals the um the imperishable what you asked the the cause of this entire universe then one thing by knowing which everything becomes known here a little qualification 
So if all the Vedas are lower knowledge, in that case, the Upanishads, what we are studying now, is included in the Vedas. It's a part of the Vedas. So uh, would that be lower knowledge also? Now, there are two answers to this. One, the usual answer is that um, these Upanishads are not meant here. By lower knowledge is meant the ritualistic portion of the Vedas. The Vedas have two portions, the knowledge portion and the ritualistic portion. So the ritualistic portion, which is the vast bulk of the Vedas, that is lower knowledge. And these Upanishads are excluded. They, they are not lower knowledge, they are higher knowledge. Or there is a, a more a subtle explanation. Because the Rishi said, the knowledge by which the highest reality is re revealed, which, which is akshara, the imperishable, that's higher knowledge. Now, what is that knowledge? It, it could be enlightenment itself, not the book, the Upanishad, not the text. The enlightenment that lead that these texts lead to. So this book would be still part of the lower knowledge, but enlightenment itself, Brahma Jnana, that would be the higher knowledge. So that's another interpretation. All right. And then what is this imperishable, which is the cause of the entire universe? Um, so here he gives an answer. The, um, we get a very powerful mantra and the sixth mantra. First of all, the neti neti approach, not this, not this, that which is not a, an object of any of the senses. You can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it. Agrahyam, it's not an object of any of our organs of action. You can't catch hold of it. Uh, or by extension, you know, the, the various instruments that science has in, uh, developed, whether, um, you know, which extend the power of our senses or which extend the powers of our action. None of them can objectify it. Um, then it has no source of its own, no features of its own. It is nirguna. Um, it, uh, it also does not function through sense organs and so on and so forth. doesn't have hands and feet and so on. Not this, not this. And at the same time, also the positive description, it is eternal, it is all pervasive. It alone becomes this entire universe. It's the cause of the universe. So in one mantra, the sixth mantra, what we in Vedanta call Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. Brahman is the absolute reality, which is existence, consciousness, bliss. And Brahman is the god of this universe, the god of religion, the creator of this universe. Both are indicated in the sixth mantra. So showing hereby, there are not two different things. It is the same absolute reality, existence, consciousness, bliss, with the power of Maya, which is experienced as god in our religious life. And then gives the famous mantra with examples. How does that one produce the many? How does Brahman produce this world? You know, the cause produce the effects. So it gives the example as a spider produces and retracts a web. As uh, the earth, from the earth, herbs and shrubs are produced. And then as from a living human body, uh, hair, nails, they emerge and so on. So from the uh, imperishable, the universe of effects. This varied universe emerges. And then what else? It uh, talks about um, the stages of creation. So there are stages. Brahman, and then it is as if Brahman swells when the power of Maya is ready to create this universe. And then there's a subtle creation. 
subtle elements, the mind, cosmic mind is produced. And then there's the growth or physical creation and this entire universe, physical universe, which we are aware of, including these physical body, bodies are produced. So that was what we had done so far. Now, what remains? I have to go into detail into this. The two divisions which the teacher made, the higher knowledge and the lower knowledge, Paravidya and Aparavidya, are going to be examined for the rest of the Upanishad. The lower knowledge, Aparavidya, will be quickly dealt with in the present section, which we are going to start now. And then the rest of it will be about the higher knowledge. What is this lower knowledge you're going to deal with and why are we going to deal with it? It's because um, this talk which is going on of the one being from which the entire world emerges and the knowledge of that Brahman, that you are that Brahman, all this is news to Shaunaka. Because he's, as it was indicated, he's a pious man and he's a man of his times, he's religious. So he's used to the religion of his times. And the ancient uh, Hindu religion was a religion of Vedic ritualism. Uh, at the centerpiece of which was the Vedic fire sacrifice, Yaga or Yajna. And um, what did you do there? You would, under very precise instructions, uh, the performers of these uh, sacrifices, they would light a fire and they would offer oblations into it to the accompaniment of specific mantras. And the goal of this ritual would be to, uh, there would be twofold goals actually. One is um, the attainment of worldly and otherworldly desires. So worldly desires like as people want, um, let there be rainfall. You can imagine what people would have wanted three or 4,000 years ago on the plains of India. So let there be rainfall, let the crops be bountiful, let our enemies be defeated, let our children and um, you know our families be safe, let our cattle be safe, uh, let... Um, uh, as uh, you know, expand our families and possessions, so on. Um, what else? They would also pray for. They would. They would want a pleasant life in the hereafter. As long as we are alive in this world, let us be protected from harm. Let us become more prosperous and bountiful. And after death, let us go to heaven. What is heaven? We have a pleasant life here, and heaven is a continuation of this pleasant life in the hereafter. That. Uh, in heaven, all our desires are fulfilled immediately, and there is uh, no apparent aging. Um, you know, the usual worldly sorrows are not there. You get a variety of heavens, not just one heaven. There are actually seven heavens which are mentioned. I mean, this world and then six higher worlds. So one could hope to attain to those. And the Vedic rituals promised that if you perform these rituals properly, um, then you would get a pleasant life here and you'd go to heaven after death. This was one purpose of the Vedic rituals. There was a second purpose, a more uh, a higher purpose and a less known purpose, which is the same rituals. If you do it without um, any worldly or otherworldly desires, in that case, they would purify your mind. They would you know, develop your powers of concentration. They would cleanse the mind of past conditioning. And you'd be a fit student for Vedanta. So to, to create the conditions for Vedanta, Vedic ritualism is helpful if it is done without desire, worldly or otherworldly desire. So this is the dual purpose of Vedic rituals, depending on what we want. What do we want? 
So mostly people want pleasure and success, wealth, and the twofold aim of artha and karma. Karma is pleasures and artha is uh, success and welfare. How do you get that? Dharma. Dharma is a word which has many, many meanings, but is a technical meaning in the Vedic sense. It is the uh, performance of these Vedic rituals and the merit that you gain from these Vedic rituals. And these Vedic rituals would generate merit and the merit would be translated into fulfilling your worldly desires. If you generate a lot of merit through the Vedic proper Vedic rituals, then whatever you could want in this world, you will get easily. And after death, you go to get, get to go to heaven, after going to heaven, and then when you, everything is temporary. This world is temporary. Heavens are also temporary. So you can, you'll come down from heaven back to this world, but again, you'll be put in, um, in good conditions, maybe a wealthy, um, a prosperous, good family, and you enjoy good health, a long lifespan. All of these things which people want in the worldly sense, you will get um, uh, all of these. So this is dharma in a technical sense, which gives you the performance of Vedic rituals with a goal of getting artha and karma here, welfare, prosperity, you know, all the, all the pleasures that you could want and an intensified life of um, pleasure, pleasure and um, you know, pleasant life in the hereafter in heaven. Um, and beyond these, what we want is moksha, liberation, a spiritual quest. So here is a point. What this, this section, which you're going to start now, it might be a little difficult to relate to because it talks about in the, it, it in the Vedic context. So Vedic fire sacrifices, which we don't perform really these days. In Hinduism, nothing dies out. So they are still there. Vedic fire sacrifices are there in an attenuated, smaller form. Those who have seen it being performed, you can relate to it a little bit. Why it is difficult to relate to is because in modern Hinduism, we have moved over to a different kind of ritual, which is called a puja. So what you see in temples and Hindu houses and what people do, or I do in our, in our ashrams, uh, what I have personally done, this is a puja, which is another set of rituals, but of a later origin. And you can clearly see Vedic elements in the puja. If you do a puja, you can see in some of the mantras and some of the rituals, it comes from a Vedic element. There are tantric elements also in that and so on. Mm, what else do I need to say? All right. So the distinction between um, um, conventional religion and higher religion. This I've spoken about earlier. The importance of this chapter is it shows us the distinction between conventional religion and higher religion. Um, this one must take note of before proceeding. So we come to an ashram, we are attending a talk by a Swami. So what are we doing? We're being religious. But actually religious in a very different sense than what is understood in the mass sense. See, there is a religion of the masses. In every religion it's there. So the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who line up before the great ancient temples of India, if you ask them, are you here for enlightenment to know the one thing by which everything is known? They'll say, no, absolutely not. We have no interest in such things. But then why, why are you here? We are here because I want to heal my sick child. I want to, you know, be wealthy or, um, you know, or just to get the blessings of God for a good family, for a family life, a prosperous career. And I guess heaven after death. So, it is a very worldly desire and other worldly desire, but not spiritual desire, which motivates the masses. 
And that's true, whether it is ancient Hindu temples, I've seen this in Buddhist, um, um, not monasteries, Buddhist temples, Chinese Buddhist temples I've seen, where people go there, they say a prayer, light a joss stick, incense sticks, and pray there. They pray for the welfare of their ancestors. We'll see a link with that very soon. Pray for the welfare of their ancestors, welfare of their business and their own families. So this is conventional religion, mass religion. How is this different from the higher religion or spirituality? See, the higher religion is for liberation, moksha. And this conventional religion is dharmartha kama, uh, for good life in this world and for going to heaven. And then after, after that, and then again come back to, to a good life in the next, again in this world and so on. It is still samsara. It's a good way of living in samsara, uh, sort of uh, sustainable, eco-friendly way of living in samsara, as we would say today. But it still doesn't solve the problem of samsara. You're still stuck here and still exposed to the terrible uncertainties and dangers of samsara. There's no freedom here. That's the lower religion. I put it in this way. God for my life is lower religion or conventional religion. We, we have conveniences which makes our life, our present life better. I'm not going to let go of my present life. This life is what I want, but I have some problems here. Maybe I could be healthier, I could be wealthier. People could be nicer to me. I could have a better place to stay. I could have better gadgets and cars. All of these things make my present life better. And God is also one more thing which, can, which promises to make my pres uh, present life better. That's conventional religion. And the higher religion is my life for God. See, conventional religion is God for my life. My life will continue. God is, helps me with my life, makes it better. But higher religion is my life for God. The whole purpose of my life becomes God realization. The whole purpose of my life becomes nirvana, moksha. That's the goal I'm looking for. Not to decorate and enhance my present worldly existence. Um, so lower religion, dharma, thakama, the higher religion of spirituality, moksha. And here also we will see Paravidya and Aparavidya. Paravidya is the higher uh, religion of spirituality, which leads you to moksha, nirvana, God-realization, freedom. Aparavidya is the lower religion, or I don't like saying lower religion, conventional religion, which leads to welfare in this world and the next world. Um, and this present section will show us the lower religion, or again, I'm saying lower religion, conventional religion, uh, and in the Vedic context. So what it was in the Vedic times. And then it will show us the limitations of this um, conventional religion, what it can't do for you, examines it, and then discards it and encourages us, the Upanishad, the teacher encourages us to move to spirituality, not be satisfied with lower religion. However, when it uh, criticizes the, um, the you know, conventional religion, at no point does it say that it is false. This is the difference between modern people I mean, this day and age who criticize religion. They'll say the whole thing is false. It's all superstition, you know, rituals, God, heaven, and all of that. And um, so, and of course, they'll dismiss spirituality also as superstition. Um, but if you see what the Upanishad does is, 
it does not say that those things are false the vedic rituals and the the goals they promise the results they promise it says they are all true satyam they are all true but they will not solve your problem of samsara they will not answer your question of what is that one thing by knowing which everything is known it will not take you beyond sorrow it will not give you fulfillment um, they are it will say these are frail rafts they cannot cross the ocean of samsara based on vedic ritualism or any kind of uh, ritualistic religion so they that that is it, it, they criticize in that sense and they will show uh, in fact shankaracharya will say why are we going to talk about vedic ritualism at all that was not the question so since that is the bulk of religion even the vedas the bulk of the vedas are this ritualistic kind of religion it, you have to examine it shankaracharya says then nirvedam that is dispassion vairagya uh, uh, you dismiss it from your life that's not a goal i'm going to pursue anymore i i want nothing less than enlightenment god realization moksha nirvana that that will become firm all right as i said bulk of the vedas the vedas themselves are divided into two parts the knowledge portion and the ritualistic portion gyana kanda karma kanda the ritualistic portion itself is divided into two parts the karma portion and the upasana portion karma is rituals which you actually physically or verbally do you actually pour oblations into the kindled fire uh, accompanied by chanting of the associated mantras that's the ritual physical ritual you do it physically and verbally and there is the mental part of it which is called upasana or worship which consists of various kinds of meditation on these deities who are supposed to give us the results so that we use it quietly and visualize it they are all rituals they're all rituals even that those meditations are not part of uh, of um, brahma vidya the knowledge of brahman so that's knowledge the knowledge is distinguished clearly from ritual and meditation in this uh, in the vedic structure so work meditation knowledge karma upasana gyana work and meditation are put under one head the ritualistic portion and the knowledge portion is put under another head that is the knowledge portion or gyana kanda these upanishads are knowledge portion that's why when we are going to talk about the ritualistic portion now they are not going to teach us ritualism they're just going to give us sketch of what these rituals are what they do for you and then what they cannot do for you and why you should uh, discard them and go ahead all right with that introduction we jump into um the second section of the first chapter mantra 1 ृतस्योके they are true remember shaunaka is somebody who has religiously performed those rituals so he is not undercutting shaunaka's faith he is saying those things we have done are true tade tat satyam the karmas that the wise the rishis have discovered in the mantras they are accomplished very variously in the context of the sacrifices which are found in the three vedic you know three vedas the three vedic portions you perform them you go ahead and perform them and you will get the results perform them as directed you will get those results and those results are true he says they will get the true results 
This is the path of action or karma, which will lead to the fruits of karma. Definitely, you will get the results of those karmas. So, mantreshu karmani kavayo yanya pashyan. Um, these, the rishis, kavaya means the wise ones, the rishis, they have experienced this. So the Hindus believe that the entire Vedic knowledge was eternally coexistent with God and the rishis through their spiritual practices, they discovered these truths. Vivekananda says the way by Vedas, no texts are meant. And what it means is eternally existing spiritual truths and in different civilizations at different times, great seers have discovered some portion of the spiritual truths and they have become the scriptures of humanity. So in that sense, rishis were... In fact, the definition of a rishi, a sage, is um, rishaya mantra drashtara. Those who see the mantra, they actually saw, they, they had experience of these things, and then they put it down into language. Now here, I have to be careful. A traditional pundit would say, they actually saw it in that language. The language of the Vedas, Vedic Sanskrit, it is in that language. It's the language of the gods. It's not that they realized something and then they put made, made up poems and uh, uh, you know verses. Anyway, whichever way you would like to take it. So they saw these truths and they put it down in these mantras. What did they see? Karmani, the karmas, the Vedic rituals which you all perform, and the Vedic people they perform. Tani Tretayam Bahudasantatani. So in the Tretayam, the word here literally means in the three. Now it might mean in the Rig Veda, Yajurveda, and the Sama Veda. Um, uh, excluding the Atharva here, which does not have so much of rituals. So you have, what he's saying is, in those three Vedas, you find profusely descriptions of many, many rituals. And these were seen by the wise sages in ancient times, and they have put it down in the form of these mantras. So, Tanyacharata Niyatam. Please uh, perform these rituals as directed. Now, here is a point to be uh, noted. Because we are going to criticize conventional religion, note that Vedic religion never looked down upon conventional religion. It depends on what you want. In Dharma, Takama, Moksha, if you want worldly goals and other worldly goals, you want to be happy in this world and go to the next world and be happy there, then there's a wise way of doing these things. That is to be a pious person and perform these rituals as directed. So it's not, it's not a sin. It's not terrible to want money and you know children and, and lots of cattle and kingdoms and things like that. What worldly people in ancient times they wanted or they want today. It's not a sin to you know queue up for what Black Friday and purchase gifts. Now you can do it online. I saw this uh, online suggestions for improving, like you're like as if you're training for some athletic event. On that day, how you can order maximum amount and get the best deals. It's not a sin. What you want, if you really want it, do it. What is a sin? What would be seen as bad in the Vedic religion? If worldly things are not bad, what would be seen as bad is overstepping the bounds of morality in pursuit of our worldly goals. So I want to be rich. And there's a way of being rich. You earn the money in a legal way, pay your taxes. Pray to God to bless you in your worldly endeavors. You know, let your business be a success. That's a big thing. You see, a lot of businessmen are very religious. Not for enlightenment, for the bottom line, for profits. And that's good. 
the Vedic religion says it's perfectly all right. You can be rich. You can in a, do it in a um, ethical manner. But if they want to cheat and lie and bribe their way to, way to wealth, that would be condemned as sinful by the Vedic religion. In fact, by every religion. So the worldly goals themselves are not bad. What will be criticized a little later is that they don't solve any problem. At the end of the day, even when they give the results, even when you are well off, you're healthy, all of it is only for a time being. And all of it will go away one day. And none of it really protects you against, against the vagaries of life. Terrible, terrible shocks are there, which are generated by our own past karma. So if we all want security, we all want lasting peace and fulfillment. These, this kind of even religion, conventional religion, can't give that to you. It's a wiser, better, more ethical way of living, but still, you're open to it's still samsara. Vivekananda said, thine only is the hand that holds the rope that, um, that drags thee on. Chains, though of gold, are not less strong to bind. So chains of iron, which is bad karma, mischief, sin done in past lives. Chains of gold are good karma, which will keep giving results, but you're trapped. Money can trap you. Family can trap you. Success can trap you. Even heaven can trap you. The quest for heaven can trap you. The chains, though of gold, are not less strong to bind. Then off with them, sannyasi bold. Say, Om Tat Sat Om. This was Vivekananda. That is the criticism of conventional religion. What else does he say here? Niyatam. Satyakama. Here the word Satyakama, usually you will immediately think, Indian especially think it's a name, Satyakama. You find it in the Upanishads. That's not what is meant here. Satyakama means, Satya is the, again, Satya means truth. These are real results. And we will get real results by these rituals. The Upanishad, even about to criticize ritualism, is assuring us, you will get the results if you do that. Kama here refers to people who want these results. Kama literally means desires. But here it refers to the people, if you are seeking these things, the real, pretty real results, tangible results, worldly results, another worldly results, you will get them. But niyatam, niyatam means according to the rules. Um, so these Vedic rituals, in fact, all rituals, there's a way of doing them and the way of not doing them. It is understood in Hinduism is that if you do rituals, Vedic rituals and even pujas today, if you do them with a worldly goal in mind or otherworldly goal in mind, you better do them well. You do them precisely and carefully. Um, uh, properly done, they will give rise to results. Improperly done, they won't give rise to results. It's a wasted effort and sometimes harmful. So you are warned again and again that be careful about these employing these results. And one might think it's superstitious, but I have seen it happen. Mostly giving good results, but sometimes um, devastating. Um, quite unexplained misfortunes descending if it's not done well. Mm. There are stories of uh, you know, sometimes the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, I think it was Kali Maharaj probably, Avedananda or someone, who I forget. So when he wanted to become a monk, um, he came to Sri Ramakrishna and then his elder brother, his father, they were disputed, they didn't want him to become a monk. And finally, they engaged a whole um, set of Brahmins who performed a ritual which would, uh, you know, harm Sri Ramakrishna and bring back um, the boy to their family. So it's a very worldly kind of desire. 
Now, Sri Ramakrishna somehow um, knew about this and um, um, told uh, the, the boy that go back and tell your family not to do this because it will harm them. You have taken refuge under the Divine Mother of Arakali herself. These are all her powers. So um, tell them not to do it. Otherwise, it will rebound on them. Like this. This is your path. Pantha means path. This is your path to the world gained by good karma. Sukrita, well, literally it means well done. So these perform rituals that have been performed, they give rise to a lot of punya or merit. And with that merit, you have a wonderful life here. Go to heaven after death. Come back to in a, in a more favorable circumstances. So this is your path. This is your path. And all good, good so far. Then he describes poetic, the Vedic ritual, the, the, the flames of the sacrificial fire. Second mantra. Yada lelayate herchi samidhe havya vahane tadadjabhaga vantarena ahuti pratipadayet. When the fire being set ablaze, the flames shoot up. One should offer the oblations into that part which is in between the right and the left. So those who have done Vedic rituals, I've done a little bit, you know exactly what they're referring to. There are, the whole altar is divided into certain portions, the flames are lit, and then there are places where you have to pour the oblations uh, with the uh, ladle, with the accompaniment of mantras. When the fire is set ablaze, the flames shoot up. But it's English doesn't do justice to the poetry. They really loved their Vedic fires. Leila Yate Harchi, the shining flames when they flicker and dance. Samiddhev, it is well lit, well kindled fire. Havyavaha, fire, but that the word fire doesn't do justice to the original Sanskrit word. It means the one who takes your offerings to the gods. So that's the meaning of this word. Havyavaha, the carrier of your oblations to the gods. And then this particular offering you put in this particular place between the two flames. Just the way of uh, most of these Vedic rituals, you would do it in this way. He's just indicating. When he points out, it's difficult because if you make mistakes, you will not get the results or there might be adverse consequences. The third mantra. It's difficult to follow it properly. So now you begin to see the beginnings of criticism here. The Agnihotra ritual destroys the seven words of the man whose Agnihotra sacrifice is without the Darsha and Paurnamasha rites devoid of Chaturmasya, um, bereft of Agrayana, unblessed with guests, it goes unperformed, is unaccompanied by the Vaishwadeva rite, and is performed perfunctorily. Now, if you don't do it well, what happens? You have lots of technical words here. The basic principle is this. Most of these big Vedic rituals, uh, they had lots of subsidiary rituals. You know, um, so 
uh, I have to apply to go to a program in, uh, in the UK. I have to apply for a UK visa. So that's the whole, the main ritual is to go, to, you know, the, the result is going to the United Kingdom to attend the program. But for that, you need to perform this ritual of uh, applying for the United Kingdom visa. And for that, there are multiple subsidiary rituals, like uh, filling up of a particular form, uh, applying with some kind of uh, fees. Each one is a particular little ritual, and they have to be done. None of them will get you to the United Kingdom, but they all have to be done uh, as part of the whole big ritual of applying for a, uh, of a visa. Similarly, you want to go to heaven. So there is, it's called the Agni Hotra. It was the most famous, most common and famous of the Vedic rituals. Even now, there are Agni Hotris. Uh, it's actually a title in India for Brahmins, some Brahmins. And there are actually people who still perform this. The, the devout Vedic ritualist was supposed to perform this, and a man was supposed to perform this, married man was supposed to perform this twice a day, twice a day for all, all his life. And now, but they had many associated rituals, some of which were part of the original Agnihotri ritual, and some of which accompanied it. That means if you wanted to be uh, an Agnihotri, a performer of these, this ritual, which will take you to heaven afterwards, uh, you would also have to have associated disciplines which you observed. All of them together would make this work. And here is giving it in a negative sense. Suppose you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do that. Well, none of this will work then. He says, the teacher says, he says that um, if you do it without the darsha and purnamasa rites, so these are rites, uh, they're not really part of Agnihotra, but they're associated with Agnihotra. You're supposed to do them. And suppose you don't do them. You don't do the, these associated rites. No. It's like you're applying for the visa and you forget to sign it. Well, you have, that part is, is it's lost. Uh, or, of course, that's part of the application. But there's something that accompanies the application. Like, for example, the fees. You, you pay the fees. That's not part of the application, but it accompanies the application. So if you do this stuff, you do the ritual well, but you don't do the accompanying things well. It won't work. Uh, the Darsha and Purnamasya rites, if you don't do them, then there's another one called Chaturmasya. It's another rite. Um, uh, those who don't know, it's fine. But those who know, they might get confused. Chaturmasya is a four-month rainy season. Monks, traditionally in India, they would wander from place to place and teach and beg for their food and stay in you know, forests or villages or temples. But the re rainy season, traditionally, Buddhist monks, Jain monks, Hindu monks, they would select a good place to stay for that season. Because if you wander in that season, it's difficult to wander. You will probably washed out by rains and uh, there are natural problems. So they would stay in one place and perform their meditation, study and all in one place. Chaturmas is a four month of retreat. A very ancient custom among monks. That is not what is referred to here. That's the point I'm making here. That, because people have heard, usually today, no, almost nobody has heard of the Vedic ritual called Chaturmasya. But many people might have heard of the monastic practice of the rainy season retreat. This is not a monastic practice. This is very much something that was practiced by, it's a, it's a ritual uh, practiced by Vedic householders. Suppose you don't do that. And then what else don't you do? The Agrayana, another ritual which you don't do. Um, Atiti Varjitam, without guests. Without guests means one part of the ritual was always you would have to feed a guest, um, which meant someone other than your family. 
So someone who you who's not part of your family, but you have to take care of that person. That's part of the ritual. Should if you don't do it, then the ritual is incomplete. Um, Ahutam, you don't offer the offerings at the right time or place. Then one more, another rite called the Vaishwadeva. Don't do that rite either. Um, and you perform it just mechanically. Um, so not all of these parts. You would have to be pretty, uh, we work hard to you know, make, to have all these parts. Even one of these parts sabotages your whole effort. And we understand this in our worldly um, endeavors. If you do th stuff, you have to do it well. There's a saying that uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Now, what is the problem if you don't do it well? There's a very serious warning here. The seven worlds are destroyed. Now, what seven worlds are destroyed for this person who doesn't do it well, who does it but doesn't do it well, would be um, the seven heavens. So they will not go to the heaven which they wanted. So none of those heavens are open and they're all shut. But you, can, you don't get to go to the United Kingdom for the yoga festival. Um, so if you don't do it well, what are the seven heavens? Bhur, Bhuva, Swa, Maha, Jana, Tapa, and Satya. Each better than the earlier one. The Bhu is this one. So we are in a kind of a heaven, this world. Higher than this is the Bhuva, and then the Swar, which is called Swarga, which is actually literally heaven. But higher than the Swarga also is the Maha, the Great, the Jana, the Tapa, and Satya. So these are higher and higher heavens. All the doors are firmly shut if you haven't done your Vedic homework properly. Or another meaning is this, the seven worlds are lost means the seven generations are lost. So when you offer, make offerings, the Shraddha offerings to your ancestors, usually do it for three generations, parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. And you would also receive in turn these um, offerings after our own death, We'd receive it from children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. That's six generations, and you are the seventh. So that's seven generations, three preceding you, and three after you, and including you. All of them, their, their uh, prosperity and uh, you know their uh, chances at going to heaven are blocked or obstructed if you make a mess of these rituals. So that might be the meaning of lo losing seven worlds. And the words, the word we use for words is lokaha. This, uh, common word in Sanskrit for lokaha means the world but it's very interesting and the, the root is look in Sanskrit look and one of the meanings is to look the English look L-O-O-K so loka is a field of experience this is a field of experience and the heavens are different fields of experience you'll have various kinds of experiences the hells there are seven hells they're also fields of experience like nasty experiences and they are all called lokaha. And one of the meanings is literally, in English it's translated as look, L-O-O-K, look. And uh, it's uh, literally the same word in Sanskrit and English. So it's a dire warning. You better do the Vedic rituals well if you want those worldly and otherworldly results. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything. Then there is a description of a fire in which the Vedic rituals are going on. Poetic description of the fire. You'll see what I mean. Fourth mantra, 
काली कराली च मनोजवाच सुलोहिताया सुधुम्रवर्णा स्थुलिंगिनी विश्वुची चेवी लेलायमानाइति सप्तजिभा these are literally the descriptions of the flames they have a big fire going and here's the poetic description as i said they loved their vedic fire rituals there is a description of the flames um the name the flames are called the seven names and the meanings i'll tell you kali karala kali karali manojava sulohita sudhumravarna sphulingiri vishwarooji these are the seven tongues the flaming tongues literally what do they mean these words they mean kali the black flame the terrible flame speedy as the mind the very red flame colored like thick smoke emitting sparks and having innumerable rays so these are the different names of the of the flames is just describing the vedic fire ritual going on and then the number 5th mantra not much to say here it's like a poetic description of the flames so what do you get out of it the fifth mantra says eteshu yascharate bhrajamaneshu yathakalam chahutayo yadadayan tam nayanti ta suryasya rashmayo yatra devanam patireko divasah poetic description these oblations the ones you put in the fire turn into the rays of the sun and take him up the dead one the person who's died for whom you have done these oblations these rituals to lead him who performs the rites in these shining flames at the proper time to where the single lord of the gods that is indra presides over all basically goes to heaven and so this is a person who has been doing the rituals all his life he goes to heaven or if it's done for his sake you know he, it's a very poetic description he rides on the rays of the sun up to heaven where you know the heaven is presided over the, by the one god of the one king of the gods indra and so on uh-huh. this will complete the section i'll just read sixth mantra ehiti tamahutaya suvachasah suryasya rashmi bhir yajamanam vahanti priyam vacham abhivadanti vachayantya ऑब्लेशन carry the sacrificer along the rays of the sun so they actually think that there is personified there are divine beings who will appear before the dead person and say come come ehi ehi means come come uh, it's all set you know you're all set now we'll show you this is the path to heaven and here is you will dwell in heaven and will be uh, you're going to have a wonderful time of it you know they'll give you the keys to heaven and show you and praise you for being such a ritual such a, a good uh, you know pious person all your life and so it's all all very great i'm reminded of a story we had this swami nishtreya sharanduji long before my time i never saw him he is the one he was disciple of swami shivananda 
and he established the Vedanta work in South Africa. This was um, uh, long before the independence of India. But I know Swamis who have met this, this Swami, and he was by all, um, by all accounts quite a remarkable Swami, Swami Nishreyashan. He came to the United States also. Um, one of the things about him was he explained Vedanta with wonderful stories. This mantra, the, these things, this concept which we discussed today, he explained it thus. He said, Swami said, when I go from South Africa to India, this was later on after the independence of India, um, I can fly, you know, I can, I purchase, I, I get the money and purchase a ticket from Durban or, you know, from Durban and then go to Mumbai and, you know, by the air, by air India. And when I come to the plane, there are these air hostesses and they say, come, come, this is the, um, the wonderful seat that you have purchased. You can sit here and these are the amenities. It will be, uh, so very soon you are flying at 30,000 feet in the air and it's cool and comfortable and they're serving you with all sorts of nice foods and there is a cinema at that time, there used to be one big screen in the old aeroplanes which you could see a movie on. Here is the movie which you have earned and you have a wonderful time of it. And then he says, finally what happens is you land in Mumbai and the captain says, um, that uh, so we have arrived at our destination, it's Mumbai. It is uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside and 100 100% humidity. And thank you for flying with Air India. We hope you'll fly with us again. And you want to say, no, I want to stay here. I don't want to go. I like it here. No, you can't. The same air hostesses who escorted you with such you know pleasing words and saying, come, come, this is your well-earned seat. They will say, you have to leave now or else we're going to call security. You can come again. But you have to purchase the ticket. You have to earn money to purchase the ticket. Similarly, with the Vedic rituals, your lifelong devotions, at the point of death, there are these divine beings who come and escort you and say, they say literally, ehi, ehi, come here, come here. You pious one, you uh, religious uh, hero, this is the heaven that you have earned with all your lifelong devotions. And these are the facilities available here. But one day will come. And when you suddenly lose everything. And the devastating thing about living in heaven is this. Because you don't age. Because there are no physical problems. And there are no, there's no warning. You are having a great time. And then suddenly they tell you they're going to throw you out. You have run out of credit. You're going to go back and be born on earth again. So there are descriptions of the gods falling from heaven. Uh, uh, crying, alas, alas. And they fall back, back to earth. So... That is Vedic ritualism. And then from the next mantra onwards, criticism will begin. That this is not spiritual. And this is not going to solve anybody's problem. Uh, we must look further. We must look for the truth. Which is the question which Shaunaka asked. He has been doing all these rituals, but he says, I don't know what's going on here. What's the truth about this world? Who am I? What is this world? Uh, how can I know the reality? You know, tell me the one thing by which I can know everything here. That will be the higher knowledge, which we shall see in the next class. So we're going to wrap up uh, for our summer break. So I'll be traveling extensively, giving talks in different parts of the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Singapore, um, and come back in about two and a half months. <laughs> All right, let's look at the questions and comments.
Abhijit says, could you suggest which documents the history and transition of Hinduism from Vedic rituals to current state of ritualistic practices? No, I don't know if I know a particular book. I'm sure there are books. So this is a big topic, but I really haven't read anything. Rick says, isn't Sattva less binding, less opaque than Tamas? Absolutely. Why would Shankara and others recommend various methods to cultivate purity as preparation for being capable of Brahmavidya? Absolutely. Gita also says that, that in order to be fit for Brahmavidya, it's much better to be sattvic rather than predominantly rajasic or tamasic. Tamasic will not allow you any spiritual progress. Rajasic will allow you, it's dynamic, but he'll keep disturbing you and distracting you. Sattvic, dhriti utsahastamanvita, Gita Krishna says, the, the, the seeker is endowed with um, consistent effort, uh, the ability to hold on to a high pursuit for a long time, and enthusiastically. There are people who are enthusiastic. They, but they, what happens is they take up one good thing after another, one nice book after another, one nice practice after another, never following anything through. And there are more and more of such people. So it's enthusiasm, but that will not uh, give uh, yield high results. You must hold on. There are people who can hold on, but unenthusiastically. They're the most depressing people around. They can mechanically slog all their life, but they don't put any heart into it. Um, as the Upanishad itself said, if you do it without any heart, even the rituals also won't work, let alone spiritual life, bhakti or yoga. So, um, consistency and enthusiasm, joyfully. It's, I've seen this. I told you this earlier. We all come to be monks and when we go for training, all of this batch of young men who have come to be monks, they're all spiritual seekers. But then why are they different? It's because of the different mix of sattva, rajas and tamas in each of us. There are some, I have seen in every batch, there are some who joyfully get up at 3.40 a.m. in the morning, 3 they are, they are awake before everybody else. I used to see some of my roommates, I mean, were novices, I would sleep to the last possible moment, which is 3.40 a.m., and then get up, and I would sometimes see my roommate gone. He's already got up, uh, he has taken a bath and gone to the temple to meditate at maybe 2.30 or 3 or something like that. So they joyfully get up early in the morning. They joyfully meditate. It's not a struggle for them. They love uh, the studies, the Vedantic studies. It's not boring or too difficult or dry for them. They love serving others. You know, the, They're happy to take on as much work as you want to give them. They're, they feel they're worshipping the Lord through any possible work. They always do more than they're uh, asked to do. And they are very happy with the devotional practices, the evening arati and the puja. They find, a very, uh, they find the whole thing very uplifting. So that's, that's a sattvic nature. You see, wouldn't all monks be like that? Not necessarily. There are rajasic who might be very happy if you get them you know, a lot of work, clean the entire floor, serve a hundred monks with food. Great, they're up and doing. Come to class. A big yawn. You see, <laughs> the result is a big yawn. Uh, now, that's a rajasic mindset. And then there's a tamasic mindset, although uh, they want to be spiritual, but the constitution is such that uh, it's a drag. Getting up early in the morning is too difficult. Meditation makes me sleepy. Studies make me bored. And uh, my devotional practices are all mechanical and serving others. Why should I do more? It's not my duty. Why should I do it? No, no, no. So that is a tamasic mindset. Now, Krishna says there, in the Gita, we will see later on, um, 
So suppose I have, and be honest, I have a tamasika or rajasika, a mix of rajasika and tamasika and very little sattvic. We all have sattvic mindset to some extent, otherwise we would not be interested in spiritual life. So we all have it to some extent. Now the thing is, Krishna says, there is no need to be disappointed or, or feel that I can't be spiritual. Not at all. Everybody can be spiritual and should be spiritual. Um, only thing is, the struggle is more. If you are lucky to be endowed, lucky means you have put in the struggle in past lives. So lucky to be endowed with, uh, with a sattvic mindset, spiritual life will be much easier for you, smooth and fast. For the rest of us, it won't be. I remember this young novice. Um, we had a very great Swami as our, um, you know, the head of the ashram when we became monks. So I still remember, it's quite poignant. This young man, um, the Swami heard his background and everything and then said, your life as a monk will be a life of suffering and struggle. And then he said, it's an ornament. There's nothing wrong in it. Suffering and struggle is an ornament for monastic life. So there's nothing to be disappointed in that. So, um, which means even if I'm not suited to the spiritual life, I see very soon. And somebody else is much better at it than I am. Doesn't matter. I must hold on. And as the Bible says, this is a very strange game indeed, in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You, you try, try, and maybe you're not progressing, and you end up becoming, you know, you get a vision of God, you become or enlightenment or the realization of the self. Something happens, something very dramatic, something very high, entirely possible. Whereas the other person whom you saw to be a much better spiritual seeker early in life, 20, 30 years ago, is still more or less the same, still a good person, but slugging along. I'm quite bereft of those dramatic insights and the revelations you have been graced with. So you never know. We were reading the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna that day, and Sri Ramakrishna in a very blunt and dramatic way, he said, uh, I was reading that, uh, what did he say? He said that, uh, you never know who will win in this, in the, in the spiritual path. Win means it's all in the hands of God. And then he gave a very, very blunt example. The other day I saw a prostitute pass away uh, in the Ganga, spurt, uh, touching the Ganga in full consciousness, repeating the name of Hari, or the name of God. Now, it's a very dramatic example. So passing away in full consciousness, in, in God consciousness, that shows a very high level of spiritual attainment. And yet, he says uh, she was a streetwalker. So, uh, what it means is, it's entirely up to God, not up to our, our personal endeavors. However, having said that, personal endeavor is absolutely a must. It shows that we want it. Then Sri Ram says, like Lord Krishna, the Bhagavad Gita mentions, Karma Kanda, portion of the Upanishads, only to dismiss it. Are we studying the Karma Kanda to avoid them or do... Th no, we are not even studying the Karma Kanda. Karma Kanda is a vast, vast subject. Those who are masters of Purva Mimamsa, they know some of this. It's a vast area. Vast means using Vedanta is vast and complicated. Just, just you wait. You try to see what Vedic ritualism was. It's much more complicated, much more detailed, much more ornate, vast. The literature is also extensive. We are not studying it at all. We just... Because it's the Vedic context, we have to know what all that was and why we are not going down that path. 
do they the worship um sankirtan etc have a legitimate useful indispensable place in journey to liberation yes so when you're talking about sankirtan and worship ritualistic worship singing the praises of god we do all that but remember the difference is this doing that ritualism with worldly and otherworldly goals that is karma kanda doing the same rituals with the goal of purifying ourselves and attaining god realization that's very much the higher religion so nothing that we do here for example in the vedanta society nothing that we do here is actually karma kanda it is all the knowledge portion even the puja that we do even the rituals that we perform the chanting that we do the arati that we do all of it is 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 vedanta swami ashokan ji said it is the rituals are the rituals that we do are concretized philosophy or concrete philosophy the vedanta which we are reading here that has been put in certain forms and we are doing it for the same purpose we are studying vedanta for enlightenment we are doing the ritual the puja of um, sri ramakrishna here or in all the temples the any spiritual seeker when they do the puja they are doing it for enlightenment not to go to heaven or to get money or something like that so the same rituals uh, in many cases the same agnihotra can purify your mind the same rituals which people do for worldly goals can and do purify our mind the puja that we do here you will see it's basically the same hindu puja offered to deities anywhere but if it's done with a pure mind for god realization it's a part of your spiritual practice not a worldly worldly practice amira says if we are in the pursuit of materialistic success wealth etc and become aware of brahma gyan how is it possible to continue work with the same intensity it isn't if we do feeling that it is pointless or guilt will arise the bhagavad gita lord krishna gives this knowledge to a householder in expresses confusion could you please advise on this yes so as i said earlier worldly goals are not a sin it's not wrong to want uh, children or money or success not even wrong to use religion for that you can pray to god perform the rituals to um, not have things go your way in the in the worldly sense or even heavenly sense other worldly sense however the whole point is to see through the limitations of that pursuit and see very soon even if you get what you want uh, you will not be satisfied if uh, a certain maturity must come you cannot remain satisfied with the toys of your childhood all your life at one time it's appropriate but you know when you're older it's no longer appropriate so if you feel that i don't desperately want that promotion that money that that uh, degree anymore i mean they're good but they're not really my goal anymore that intensity people say it has gone down good good it should go down the intensity in worldly pursuit should go down i see young people they come to manhattan the fast life in new york and they work all it is a city that never sleeps so work all week long and party hard all weekend long and so there's nothing wrong in that but very soon you should be the intelligent person should see through it that uh, this is what it does and no further this much and no further if you don't get out of it at that trap time is going by a precious life is is being uh, spent the sooner you see through it the sooner your the intensity of your worldly our worldly drives and desires the intensity goes down that's really good now intensify your spiritual pursuit 
Krishna engaged Arjuna in the same battlefield, same work, but for the entirely different goal. That work now becomes Karma Yoga. Earlier, it was a worldly pursuit. You know, Arjuna wanted revenge against the evildoers, wanted a kingdom which was rightfully his and his brothers, and so on. All of that goes out of the window when Arjuna says, I don't want to fight this battle. So all worldly goals are thrown out. But still, the spiritual goal is there, God realization and work in the world. So if you have made up your mind to be spiritual, are you going to abandon your family? Are you going to resign from your job? Don't do it. That's not the uh, advice of uh, Vedanta. Spiritualize. Spiritualize. Make karma into karma yoga. Sangeeta says, karma kanda significance. Rituals add structure and purpose to the lives of people. They make them live responsibly, reminding them of the need to live according to the ideals of Hindu dharma and think about themselves beyond this life. Inspiration for rituals, Hindu rituals comes from God himself. Rig Veda states, in the beginning of the creation, cosmic being, Purusha performed a great sacrifice to create the world and beings. Correct. So there is a purpose. If you're going to live for worldly goals and other worldly goals, there's a way of doing it. And there is a wise, sustainable way of doing it, which is good for yourself, good for the family and good for the society. So the rituals perform are part of that. Uh, life of Vedic ritualism, I have not seen too much of it closely, but there are people, monks in our order, who have come from such families. And they said our grandparents and all who followed that kind of a life, they led most austere and simple lives, very, very uh, ritualistic, householder life, but very saintly lives. Such a person, like Shaunaka, who is seriously, sincerely performs these rituals, when he or she turns towards the knowledge portion towards enlightenment, they'll do it much better than the others. Sri Ram says, what kind of karma kanda, upasana kanda practices facilitates the process, process of karma mukti liberation after death or is this a misunderstanding? Um, no, upasana, karma kanda, all of them can facilitate uh, enlightenment after death or karma mukti release only if there's no desire. So if you perform these meditations, Vedic meditations, but you still don't want moksha, you will not get moksha unless you want it. If you want, otherwise what will happen is you can even go to what is called Satya Loka, Brahma Loka and come back from there again. <laughs> yeah. He said, Swami Shivananda told the widower Gangacharan Mukherjee that his wife was in Shiva Loka. Is Shiva Loka, Brahma Loka, the last stop for the Bhakta. Yes, it is directly. Uh, last stop for the bhakta. And the bhakta might not want to go anywhere from there. Might want to remain forever in the presence of God. And that's liberation also. And today we talk about Ramakrishna Loka. The devotees of Sri Ramakrishna, they want to go to Ramakrishna Loka. It's all the same Brahma Loka. The highest, it's a spiritual heaven. They don't want oneness. Sri Ramakrishna put it this way. Spiritual seekers, they either want to be sugar or they want to taste sugar. So the jnani wants to be sugar become one with or realize that he or she is one with the absolute existence consciousness place and that is what is going to be taught here how to be sugar but the devotee doesn't want to be sugar devotee would want to taste sugar i would still retain my individuality and enjoy god so that's the path of the devotee uh, rick says so based upon your answer about the gold chains analogy doesn't quite hold up it does um, you can replace the iron chains with the gold chains, but you have to get rid of the gold chains also inevitably. 
rakasas uh, do the paths of bhakti yoga and raja yoga both come from the upasana aspect of the vedic rituals it's a very good question we talk about the four yogas karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga and gyana yoga but then look at the structure of the vedas karma upasana gyana rituals meditation knowledge now if you try to fit the four yogas into this structure you can do it easily the karma portion of the of the vedas when they are done without any desire or they are done with a desire for enlightenment not for worldly things it becomes karma yoga the upasana portion of the vedas when they are done without the meditation portion when they are done without any kind of worldly or other worldly desires um, that has connotations of both meditation and devotion you see the sanskrit word upasana the way we use it in indian languages upasana literally means worship mental activity but also heart so focusing the mind is part of worship but also feeling is part of worship upasana in india it's in fact a common name for girls also upasana so worship worship has both raja yoga and bhakti yoga and the knowledge portion of course is the gyana yoga ishwar kusuri says can we get zoom links the summer lectures if you are interested uh, please go to the vedanta society website and you will see swami's summer schedule there but be warned it's uh, very much a work in progress as we receive more information from the organizers of these various retreats it will be updated and uh, you'll have to contact the local organizer so it's we are not organizing it i am not organizing i'm being invited by various organizations across country and other countries so you have to um, find out what are their terms for registration or attending and so on and some of them whether they'll be available on on online some of them will be but again that's there it's up it's the concern of the local organizer not us very good take care and stay safe let me do a peace chant om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna arpanamastu